Hey, welcome to the podcast of C3 Los Angeles. I'm Jake Sweetman, and together with my wife, Nicole, we lead this church. We're glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're tuning in from, that you are encouraged and strengthened by this word. Here's today's message. I'm going to read our scripture, our theme scriptures this morning as we get started. Like Pastor James said, we're continuing our citizen series, so we're reading out of Matthew uh, chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 2, it says, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're going to jump back to the OT, first psalm, entitled, The Way of the Righteous and the Wicked. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Let's pray one more time. Thank you, Lord. Father, we pray that you'd have your way in this place today. God, we pray that you'd speak to us through your word, and that as we leave here, we'd have a deeper revelation of your plans, your purpose, and your love for your people. In Jesus' name, we said amen. Amen. Hey, thank you, band. Can we give it up for these guys? Who needs with those pesky drummers anyway? Am I right? Hey, Dakota, I love you. I'm a drummer. I can say it. So today, again, we're continuing our citizen series all about the Beatitudes, specifically in Matthew chapter 5. These Beatitudes are Jesus' teaching, his pretty much most famous sermon ever, right? The Sermon on the Mount. I'm guessing you've heard of it. And these Beatitudes, they're written in this kind of Old Testament literature style. That's why we read the first Psalm. They all go something like, blessed is the person who, and then it goes on to explain more about it. Today, we are zeroing in on that fourth Beatitude, which is uh, verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Don't know about you guys, I like to eat though, and I like to drink, so hungering and thirsting is great for me, because I like being full. It is what it is. I like eating and drinking many different kinds of things. I like drinking water, I like drinking coffee, I like drinking sparkling water, amongst other carbonated beverages, but I also like to eat, and sometimes I like to prolong my hunger a bit so that my meal can really, really satisfy me. I don't know if you've ever been there. So we're doing Sons Formation, which comes to a wrap today, which is exciting. But in Sons Formation, like Pastor James said, we fast. And uh, obviously, I'm replacing my fasting with prayer. Don't judge me. But it's funny how in the morning, you're like, all right, cool. Man, I wonder what I'm going to have for dinner. Maybe it's like a nice steak salad with some lemon dressing, real light and healthy. Then come 2, 3, 4 o'clock, that steak salad is now, in my mind, the biggest plate of steak nachos I've ever seen. That's what I want. I want a plate, just a mound of cheese. I don't want to see the chips anymore. I just want cheese, some steak on top with some jalapenos and sour cream. And I want you to wheel it over to me with a shovel. That's all I need. That's the only thing that can satisfy me. Of course, after you eat a meal like that, you feel terrible. And you're just like, God, please, please take this away from me. I'll never do it again. 
you know, there's something in endurance sports called bonking. I know Caleb Schmidt knows what bonking is if he's still in here. But essentially what bonking is, is not just a funny word, but on your day-to-day, you have a calorie store in your body. You eat food and you have calories. Is how you function. If you're out in the mountains on a long, long bike ride, like I did before I had kids, let's say you're in the Santa Monica Mountains and you're riding hours and hours on end in the sun, loving your life. Eventually, your calorie tank goes to zero. And your body's like, this was fun, but I'm done now. I'm done now. This sucks. And you're starting to get really weak and tired. You get kind of emotional, like you're on the verge of tears. Um, like just trying to ride your bike home crying, like, oh my God, so bad. In that moment, you would give anything for a tiny bit of food. You'd give anything for a drop of water, even Dasani. That's how desperate for water you are. Everyone knows Dasani's the worst, and it makes you thirstier. Don't judge me. So Jesus, Jesus is talking to a group of people in the Middle East about hungering and thirsting. Unlike us here in Southern California, when you run out of calories, they can't just go to In-N-Out, order a four-by-four, and three chocolate shakes. These people are in the actual desert. He's talking to them about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. So their hungering and thirsting is different than mine here in the mountains, right? They're like, well, I'm hungry every day, and I don't know where my meal is going to come from. I don't know how I'm going to eat tonight. I don't know how my family is going to be fed. What am I going to go kill to feed my family? So they're hearing Jesus teach and thinking, okay, I get the hungering and thirsting part, but for righteousness, what, what does that mean? So we're going to break down this beatitude together today. Like Pastor Jake started our series off two weeks ago saying that word blessed. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed means to be happy. So Pastor Jake taught us. It means to be happy. That Greek word is also translated to be envied. Now, if we look at these first four Beatitudes, which is verses three through six, we see blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, and blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty. Maybe you're holier than I am. When I think of happy people whose life I envy, that's not it. It's not it. If I'm thinking of people that are happy and whose life I envy, well, step one, they're not poor, they're rich. They got everything they need. They're not mourning, they're happy. They're beautiful, they have a family, they're successful, they have houses and property and businesses and all these things. They're not meek, they're boastful, they're proud, and they're not hungry, they can afford everything they ever need. So the first thing that comes to my mind when I read this is that Jesus is teaching something that's completely in contrast to what we would deem as making someone happy or living a life that's to be envied. So let's move to righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness in this sense means fulfilling God's expectation of us in relationship to him. Fulfilling God's expectation in our relationship with him. Essentially, it's our right standing with God or rightness. Righteousness is rightness. It's how right we are with God. So for example, my beautiful wife who's up here doing an amazing job has expectations of silly old me in our marriage, right? If I fulfill the expectations, I'd be considered righteous. By the grace of God, I will do that. In our relationship to God, that's what it's talking about, fulfilling his expectations of us in relationship to him. It's worth stating that our English word for justice shares the same Greek word for righteousness. 
So righteousness and justice, maybe you're thinking, how do those go together? Well, let's think. If the God of the universe who created everything, who created a purpose for everything and how those things operate in relationship to one another and himself, that is perfect justice. That's what justice really is, the way God intended it to be. So righteousness and justice are one and the same here. It's our rightness with God. And we skip to the end, which is satisfied. They will be satisfied. Well, that's basically the same as we would define it today. The Oxford Dictionary defines satisfying as to fulfill a desire or need. I want to be satisfied. I think we as a people all want to be satisfied. And we all have desires that we want fulfilled. Maybe now even more than ever do we want these desires satisfied and fulfilled quickly. We have a three-year-old daughter. She's only three. Every night, we read a book before bed. Some nights, it's two or three. No matter what I say, okay, honey, you know, a little late tonight, we're going to do one book. She says, before we even get to the last page, she gets off the couch and goes, Daddy, who are your two books? If I say it's a big night and we're reading three books, before we get to the end, she looks at me, Daddy, who are your four books? She wants more than I gave her without fail. We're in a cycle as humans of having a desire and wanting to fulfill it. So I want to trace this back. Where does this come from? Where does this come from? So let's look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. It says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden over there, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Idiot. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. If we look at this picture, Adam and Eve are in righteousness with God. They are living in perfect harmony in God's perfect design in the garden up until this point. Then the serpent comes in, and what does he do? Number one, he questions the order of God. The first thing, he questions it. Did God really say? And Eve says, well, no, he didn't say that. What he did say was, don't eat it and don't touch it, which is actually incorrect. God didn't say don't touch it. He said don't eat it. So he's already getting in her head, and now she's just kind of riffing. Yeah, he said something like, uh, don't eat it, don't touch, you know, just just don't, anything to it. So he's now getting them to think God's command is too harsh. He got Eve to question the word of God. And now he's promising them something else to satisfy this desire that he has given them. He's challenging God's original judgment. You won't die. No, I know better than God. You won't die. But instead, he promised them sophistication and spiritual advancement. Who doesn't want that? I want to be sophisticated and spiritually advanced. Ultimately, he elevated human judgment above God's command. And then how does it end? Man, they hid in shame. Isn't that a bummer? They were naked. I wonder what that was like all the time. Always naked. Did they... I don't know what they did when they were naked, but wow, I... The mind can go a lot of places there. They wanted to satisfy a desire. And now we can have our desires and needs satisfied in a moment, right? 
Praise God, you can order your groceries and have Costco delivered to your house. Amen. There's DoorDash, there's Uber Eats, there's Postmates, there's all the stuff you can do. And did you notice that like during COVID, the ads, the language in the ads kind of shifted. It's like, hey, you know what? You deserve this. You deserve, the, you deserve the chocolate shake. You deserve the ice cream. You deserve the burger and the extra fries. You deserve it. Like, dude, I've been sitting down for 12 hours. I don't deserve any food. I deserve a treadmill. That's what I deserve. It's saying, hey, you have needs. You have desires. You can be the one to satisfy them. You're kind of like your own God. You know what you need. No one else can tell you what you need. Only you know and you can do it. Maybe it's deeper than food. Maybe if, if you dig inside yourself, it would sound something like, hey, you know that unforgiveness you have toward that person or people, a pastor or group? You deserve that. They really hurt you. That will satisfy you. Maybe it sounds like, hey, you know what? You have sexual desires. You can sleep with whoever you want. No one can tell you what to do. You deserve to be satisfied. You make the rules. You're your own God. You deserve to lust after that person because your marriage is hard. It's okay. You deserve to be satisfied. Why don't you get the divorce you've been thinking about? You both will be happy, right? Isn't that what you want? Get the approval of that person. That will satisfy the deep need and desire you have in your heart. Maybe you're like me, and it sounds something like, hey, here's the newest productivity hack. If you can just maximize those last 30 minutes of your day, then you'll be satisfied. You can be the one to satisfy it. So we're forced to look at our menu. We have these menus, and sometimes they're short, and sometimes they get longer and longer as we add things on them in order to achieve this satisfaction and this fulfillment of our desires. It can start small, but it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Before you know it, you got like a cheesecake factory menu. You're just like looking through. I wonder what we're going to try today. <laughs> yeah, we look at what God, what Jesus says in this beatitude. He's got one thing on his menu. One. Righteousness. Let's dig into what the Bible has to say about righteousness. In Romans chapter 4, Paul writes this. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He, Abraham, did not weaken in the faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, because he's about 100, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. You probably know the story. Genesis chapter 15, right? God says to Abraham, hey man, I got a plan for you and it's gonna rock. Through your wife, I'm gonna give you a son. And through that guy are gonna come descendants that outnumber the stars. Abraham, come here, come outside. You see the stars? He's like, oh, that's a lot. God's like, I know, they're gonna outnumber that. It's gonna be crazy. And he's like, oh, okay. You know she can't have kids, right? God's like, mm-hmm. Like, okay, let's do it, I got it. So step one of Abraham's faith, is to love his wife and attempt to have this child. So they do it. Years go by. The promise God gave Abraham has now amounted to nothing except him trying for years. He goes and tries to do it his own way. He gets with the servant. They, they have a baby, and God's like, dude, what are you doing? I told you to, it's over here. He's like, uh, but I thought, it's okay. Just keep doing this one. It's your wife. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> keep loving your wife. 
25 years later. Are some of you in this room 25 years old? That's your whole life. That's God making you a promise and taking two and a half decades to bring it into reality. Sarah gets pregnant. Abraham's like, you're so awesome, God. And God's like, I know, man, I told you. You just had to wait. They have the baby. This is the beginning of Abraham's faith. Now the baby starts to grow up. Isaac's growing up. Little man of God, they're having a good time. Isaac, Abraham. Then God says, Abe, hey, man, remember Isaac, the baby I promised you that he waited now about 30 years for? Now he's growing up? Yeah, I want you to sacrifice him to me. What does Abraham say? Okay. Okay, God. You did it before, so I think you could do it again. So he takes Isaac, takes him up onto the hill, and he's going to sacrifice him. He's prepared to do it. This baby, I got two kids. If you have kids, maybe you got a nephew or a niece that you've seen from birth. You can resonate with Abraham. Maybe you waited 25 years for it. I doubt it, but good on you if you did. I didn't, so I can't empathize with him in that way. But I can understand this baby, this promise that you've waited for coming into reality. This baby didn't exist outside the womb in one piece before. You saw it take its first breaths. Maybe you cut the umbilical cord with rocks if you're Abraham. You're holding it. Now he's growing up, and you're playing, and you're teaching him stuff, and he's learning to walk, and you're hanging out. Now Abraham sees him, and he's laying down. Abraham's looking at him. He's looking back up. He's watching his eyes blink and his chest breathe in and out, looking up at his dad saying, what are you doing here, dad? What's going on? Why am I laying here? So Abraham gets the knife, and he's about to sacrifice Isaac when an angel of the Lord says, hey, Abraham, stop. It's clear that you fear God. It's clear that you have faith. This is the faith that Paul's talking about. Abraham trusted God. Because I don't know about you, but if that were me in that moment, and God said, I want you to sacrifice him, I might have been like, <laughs> I hear you on the whole sacrifice thing, but just hear me out. What if we did like a fishing trip? What if I took Isaac and we did a father-son bonding? It could prepare him for the whole outnumbering the stars thing. I could teach him stuff. You know, we could do this. What if we just went to IHOP? They got pancake tacos now. No. <laughs> they do. Saw a commercial for it. Abraham doesn't do that. He says, okay, God, and he's prepared to do it. Abraham was hungrier for what God had commanded him to do than he was for what would have satisfied him in that moment. In a sense, Abraham had to empty himself of the desire to do what would satisfy him in exchange for what God had commanded him to do. So we're met with this paradox that we're always seeking to be full in the satisfaction, but we actually need to be emptied if we want to be filled. We want to go from one thing to the next, fullness to fullness. We want to go from a great meal at our great job, with our great salary, to our great car, to our big, one of our big houses, to our perfect spouse, to the perfect third wave coffee, to this next amazing thing and acquiring the next thing. I want to get a new job with a bigger, better salary, with a bigger, better boss. We got all these things on our menus to keep us full. Culture says, you deserve to be full, and you can do it. You can do it. Our menus get bigger and bigger, and more decadent, and more decadent, and the shame gets bigger, and bigger, and we hide, and we don't tell anybody what's going on, because our menu just gets bigger. 
we watch movies with our daughter. Typically, they're only musicals. But she likes this one that's not a musical. It's called Finding Nemo. It's what we've been watching recently. In Finding Nemo, if you've seen the hit, hit movie of Disney's 2010s or whatever, there's the sharks. Now, the sharks in the movie, they're at like their shark AA meeting, right? Like Fish Eaters Anonymous. They're there, and they're talking about the fish, and they're like, yeah, it's been a week or three weeks or whatever since I've eaten any fish. And they're like, awesome, dude. All it takes, though, is the fish bumping its nose. The shark catches a whiff of the blood, and his eyes turn black, and he goes, I need that. I need that. That has been the only thing on his menu that has ever satisfied him. But it's endless. Some of us have had the same things on our menus our whole life, and we just keep adding to it, continually coming up short. But once we realize, man, I can never be full enough on my own, it's never enough. I can't do it. No matter how much sex I have, no matter how much money I make, no matter how much approval I get, no matter even if I try to be the worst and rebel the most, I can't even get enough sympathy to satisfy me. I can't be the best husband or pastor or child or grandmother or mom or sister. It's never going to actually do it for me. So finally, we say, okay, God, then what? How am I supposed to be fulfilled? Righteousness? Okay, being in right standing with you? Great. You know how many laws are in the Old Testament? How many commands? 613. Imagine counting that out. 613. Okay, God. So now, okay, instead of doing all this stuff that's like actually kind of fun, even though it's not satisfying me, I got to do these 613 things. I got to be perfectly moral and be nice and do this on this day. And I can't do this on this day. And I have to talk like this and act like this and do everything I can to just desire righteousness because that's the only thing that's going to fulfill me. This is awesome. I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail. There's no way. It's just more stuff. If righteousness is how we're going to be satisfied, we'll never be able to achieve it on our own. And until we actually realize that it's our inability and our lack that points us to Jesus, we're going to miss it. Paul writes in Romans 8, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh in our own works, in our own ways, with our own menu, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set the minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. What Paul is saying is that Jesus is the only one to perfectly fulfill God's expectations in relationship to him. It's only Jesus. He is the only way to fulfillment. 
a lot of times we hear, yeah, God isn't a perfectionist. He doesn't demand perfection. He does. He does. That's why Jesus said, I didn't come to get rid of the 613 laws. I came to fulfill them. I came to do it so you can be saved, so you can have a relationship with the Father. I love you too much to keep chasing after your menu, to keep trying to perform, to do it in the flesh. It's not going to work. I'm going to do it for you. Jesus is saying, guys, you got it backwards. The goal isn't trying to satisfy yourself and do all of these things and expand your menu and have it be more decadent. The goal isn't satisfaction. The goal is to be hungry. The goal is to hunger and thirst for me. You'll never be able to achieve it. Come to me. That's why Jesus says in John 6, he said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So when we start to understand, it's actually when we have nothing, that is how we get everything. Our lack, our inability to achieve it on our own points us to Jesus. When we look at the first four Beatitudes, we see something. We see a through line in them. When we look at those Beatitudes in verses three through six, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. This is our entrance into the kingdom. This is what Jesus is talking about. You don't come in boastful with everything together in your own strength. No, it's only in our realization that, God, I am so poor in spirit. I am not spiritual enough for you. God, I am so mournful of everything in this life that doesn't satisfy me. I don't want it. Blessed are the meek. God, I'm so meek in your presence. I have nothing that can even compare to your worth. I'm so hungry for righteousness, Lord. Nothing I do on my own could ever come close to your perfection and righteousness, Father. And then something shifts in verse 7. If 3 through 6 is our entrance into the kingdom, we receive Jesus and experience a change. Blessed are the merciful. You become a merciful person. You become pure in heart and begin to see God. You now become a peacemaker. Now you're willing to get persecuted for righteousness' sake because none of this stuff counts for anything. Paul writes in Philippians, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as trash in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having any righteousness of my own that comes from the law that I could never fulfill or amount to anyway, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. When we have nothing, then we have everything. All you need is need. It's like when we're so desperate, when I'm cycling out there, I give anything for a drop of water. That's when we come to him and say, Jesus, I'm so desperate. I'm so desperate for your will to be done in my life. I'm so desperate for you. I want to be with you because none of this comes close. I'll never be able to consume enough or do enough or achieve enough. Even if the world says it's good, even if I get praise for it, even if people clap for me for it, it's not enough. It will never satisfy me. It isn't to be full. It's to be hungry. Jesus says in Matthew, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, 
for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. He says, just come here. Just come to me. Yoke yourself. Just link up with me, and let's walk together. Let me show you how to do this. The stuff isn't going to do it for you. I want to lead you. I love you. I love you so deeply. This stuff out here that promises to satisfy you doesn't love you like I love you. I love you enough to come and die and fulfill God's expectation that you would be counted as righteous. Just as Adam in the garden imputes or transfers original sin to us, faith in Christ Jesus imputes righteousness to you and I. That's the imputed righteousness that the Bible talks about. Our faith alone in Jesus is what makes us righteous. But it doesn't stop there. That's the beginning. We get to be righteous, and from the relationship, there's a transformation that happens, just like the Beatitudes say. Now we begin hungering and thirsting for righteousness consistently, willing to do what God tells us to do, because with Abraham, it didn't stop at, okay, God, he went to do it. Abraham's purpose, the promise that God gave Abraham, was directly connected to his hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Your purpose is tied to your hungering and thirsting for righteousness. God has a plan for you like he had for Abraham. And we get to live this life of faith here on earth, chasing after Jesus, chasing after our Lord and his plans that they would be fulfilled in us here on earth and we would get to be satisfied ultimate satisfaction will be known in heaven but now we get to taste it and live here live a vibrant rich life like he talks about in here we get to see miracles we get to do stuff that the world says is crazy that's in total opposition to what the world says he came first the enemy and the lies came after there are lies that you are believing or living in or hungering after that are not from god and he wants to redeem those we're left with one question. What's on your menu? You've been listening to the C3 Los Angeles podcast. If you found today's message helpful, we encourage you to share it with a friend and consider rating it. If you'd like more information about our church or details on how to get connected to a neighborhood group, head to c3losangeles.com. We love you. Thanks for tuning in with us.